Good morning. Can you hear me? Good morning. Welcome to Conroe Bible Church. If you are one of our guests, we want you to know that you are most welcome. We're glad that you're with us this morning. I have a few announcements that I would like to pass your way. A few of them are happening this week and then some of them uh, throughout the rest of the month. So hold on tight. On Wednesday is our family nerf night up here at the church for parents and children. If you would like to be a part of that, you just need to show up with a nerf gun. Don't bring your own bullets. I think Adam found out that some people are willing to tamper with their bullets <laughs> to gain unfair advantage. Is that right? There are dads here at the church that can't be trusted. <clears throat> That's this Wednesday. On Friday, um, July 15th, our women's ministry and our community outreach ministry have teamed up to meet some needs for local mission opportunities that we have. And you can see some of those out here on the table in the foyer. Um, so if you are uh, one of our ladies and would like to be a part of that, you can show up on the 15th at 6.30 p.m. Um, to be a part of what's going on there. The next day, the 16th at Debbie Calls House, Saturday morning, our women's ministry will have Encourage Her. Um, out there and you can be a part of that. All of these things you can get more details about through our website um, or, or the Church Center app that you can download to your phone. Um, our kids camp opportunity that happens July 18th and through the 21st, which is next week, is still open for registration. If you have a kiddo, um, K through 5, you can sign them up. And then at the end of the month, our student ministry has a summer mission project that is coming up the 26th through the 28th. So if you've got a kid in the student ministry and would like to be a part of that, you can sign them up for that as well. So that's all I have. So I guess we will begin. So stand up with me. <laughs> Amen. Let's stand and worship God through music this morning.
teach my songs your eyes to you when temptations come my way when I cannot stand I'll follow you Jesus you're my hope and stay Father God, thank you so much that you are a God who provides for his children. Thank you, God, so much that we have been given the amazing, unbelievable privilege of being called your children, as unworthy as we are. God, we definitely need you. You are our righteousness. You are the one defense in our lives. And so, God, thank you so much that you are willing to provide that for us. Continue to speak to us this morning, God. Continue to receive our offerings of worship this morning through the message, through the rest of the service. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If you have children ages 5 through 11, kids worship is now taking place, they are dismissed to leave. Has anybody else noticed that the normal guy that's up here to preach hasn't been here in a little while. It's about this tall. <laughs> big laugh. Great big smile. He's probably watching right now. <laughs> Which means he can hear your response to I wonder if I wonder if anybody misses Dave around here. Yeah. <clears throat> He's supposed to be back next week. I'd like to begin this morning by uh, taking a poll. How many of you, if you don't mind raising your hand, how many of you like to use your imagination? How many of you do not like to use your imagination? There's a couple of people in here. Use of my imagination is probably some of my oldest memories. Like I remember sitting on the porch with my grandmother, we called her Honey. I was sitting on the porch with Honey and we would just stare at the sky, looking at clouds, imagining what they looked like. Anybody ever done that before? You know, people used to do that. <laughs> I, I don't know why we stopped, but uh, probably smartphones. But I would just use my imagination. Some of, some of my favorite memories growing up are being with my family and watching cartoons. They only came on on Saturday. Like, that's not a thing anymore. Cartoons come on whenever I want them to come on. But on Saturday morning, we would sit there and watch cartoons. We would watch the stinking coyote try to catch that roadrunner. <laughs> And crazy things would happen, and my dad would always say something like, like he would run off to the edge of a cliff, you know, and then the, the end of it would break off, and the cliff would fall, and the coyote would hang in the air for a second. And dad would go, 
that's not possible. <laughs> and I just remember thinking, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, I learned there's this thing called suspension of disbelief that we engage naturally in order to relate to and empathize with fantasy, stories that are made up, fiction. I was able to do that when I was really little. So were my kids. Many of you probably were too. Like one of my kids, the fir one of the first times I remember them finding a stick in the yard, I thought he just picked up a stick, but you know what he picked up. He picked up a gun. I've got a picture of one of my kids who's standing in his underwear up against the bed like this with a cross, one of his mom's cross from the wall hanging in his underwear. He didn't have a cross. Do you know what he had? Well, it could have been a pistol, but it, this one happened to be a sword. <clears throat> Our imaginations awaken things in the world around us. They allow us to engage on a whole new level with stuff, even if it's not true, even if it's not true at all. It's one of the reasons why I like fantasy stuff so much. So things like the Chronicles of Narnia or the Lord of the Rings. In fact, C.S. Lewis said once that the reason he liked children's stories was because even though they were good for children, because adults could put so much more into them, adults could get so much more out of them. That's a children's story. And I have found that to be true. So I wonder what you do to inform your imagination, because not everything around us is fiction. Not everything around us is fiction. And we allow things to inform our imaginations because there's a lot we don't understand, a lot we don't know about, there's a lot about God that we don't know how to understand. So what do you allow to inform your imagination? Is it the world around you? Is it other Christians? Is it this? It's probably a little bit of a lot of things. Speaking of informing imaginations, um, my oldest son is 13, but back when he was four, that was when I took him on his first hunting trip. And we drove up into the panhandle of Texas to go hunting on this deer lease. And he was so excited. When that kid was four, I thought he was gonna be an auctioneer, an auctioneer, because he could string words together so fast and nobody could understand that kid. Oh, he's right here. <laughs> I'm glad you're sitting right there in front of me. <clears throat> And when he was four, he, he had not dissociated reindeer from deer. We're going hunting. So he would say stuff like, I reindeer. And what he just said was, we're going to go hunting. We're going to go see some pigs and cows and snakes and deer. But you only caught the reindeer part. But that's the way he spoke. So I'm taking this kid on his first hunting trip, have no idea what to expect. And the first night that we're going to go out in the deer stand, it is a very typical Texas hunting evening where it's like 103 degrees. And we're going to go climb in this wooden box. And that kid's grandfather gave him a bag of gummy bears that was this big. <laughs> Some earmuffs that hung right down here on his neck when he put them over his head, a flashlight, and some binoculars. So I've got this little four-year-old, and, and uh, I mean, if you know Blaine, uh, you can imagine him the size he is now is at four, and it wouldn't be too far off, but I've got this four-year-old who is on a seriously high sugar rush <clears throat> inside a 100-degree box, trying to keep him quiet so that we can deer hunt. And we've been in the blind for 45 minutes and that flashlight has been on the whole time. That was the only flashlight we had. Because it's so hot, I've got the windows open just to try to let some air in. There's no way 
there were any deer within five miles of us that hadn't heard that kid hanging out the window calling for deer. <laughs> because, you know, at first I just thought, I got to keep him quiet. And five minutes in, when I noticed the gummy bears were gone, I gave up. So, to get back to imaginations, when the sugar rush finally wore off on that guy, and he was just sort of sitting there like a zombie, he said, Dad, I want to see a deer. I said, me too, buddy. We got to be quiet. I want to see a bear. Me too, buddy. But I don't think you're going to see a bear. Well, what are we going to see? I don't know. And my imagination went off. And all I could think about were all the things that we saw when I was a kid. Porcupines with these... They were that big, Blaine. When I was a kid, we saw a porcupine that had spines that big. We saw snakes all the time. I found this rattlesnake that was coiled up around my sister like a python squeezing her to death. But I got a gun and I shot him. We used to find coyotes and they're way bigger than real dogs. They're like this tall. <clears throat> there were bats with a wingspan like this, and we used to have to dodge them riding our bikes back and forth. That's the kind of stuff I filled his head with while he's on the bottom side of a sugar rush, looking at me with drool hanging out of his mouth. <clears throat> and that was when he noticed that the flashlight was dead. And it was almost dark, and we were going to have to go back. I just played with his imagination because it was fun. He was excited about it. He actually liked hearing about all those things. I didn't anticipate what was going to happen next. And I'll get to that in a minute. Because this morning we're going to be in Psalm 23. Psalm 23, I think is one of these places in scripture that we need to be allowing it to inform our imagination of who God is and what he's like. There are other places in scripture that do the exact same thing, that try to tell us what God is like, and somehow we just miss what's real. <clears throat> Paul tells us in Colossians 1, he says that, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, which is a big help for your imagination. As you know, we, we struggle. We struggle with our imagination when we're left to ourselves. You know, you think about it. Many people like to read the book instead of watch the movie because their imagination is better than that movie is. Your imagination is so capable. So when somebody like Paul says that Jesus is the image of that invisible one, we ought to take that really seriously. Jesus even said of himself that he's the good shepherd, and that's what this psalm is about, about being a shepherd. So let's read through this psalm together. In verse 1, he says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That word my in there, that might be the most important word in this whole psalm. Because that's pretty different than saying the Lord is a shepherd or he's the shepherd. My implies some ownership. My implies some relationship, some connection. The Lord is my shepherd. And I think here where he says, I shall not want, there's, there's more implied than is, than is expressed the things that are implied when, when you say something like, I shall not want, what you're saying is, I'm going to be supplied whatever I need. And if I don't have everything that I want, then I can conclude that it's either not fit for me, it's not good for me, or I'll have it when it's the right time. But this opening statement 
of the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, is enough all by itself. He could have just ended right there. But he goes on, he says in verse 2, the beginning of verse 2, he says, He makes me to lie down in green pastures. And I don't know if you've ever spent any time perusing the internet or other resources for what we think about this statement right here, but you can find a lot of stuff about what pastures um, in the Middle East were really like, and they're not like pastures here. And I kind of feel like it's missing the point a little bit to spend so much time coming to terms with, you know, there's a bunch of rocks and dirt out there and just little bits of grass here and there, and they would call that a green pasture. That might very well be true. But he's not talking about eating right here. He's talking about lying down. You lie down in a place that you actually feel safe and comfortable. Like, I can't sleep on a plane because I'm uncomfortable. I don't like people being around me that close. I don't like sitting up straight. What he's describing here, whether it's rocks and dirt or whether it's lush, thick, green grass, is a place where you are so comfortable you lay down. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Green pastures are are not like accidental for shepherds. Like you, a shepherd is not going to just stay with his flock and then this one's kind of used up. I guess we'll try over here next. They're actually pretty calculated and purposeful about where they're going to go and why and how long they stay. That green pasture was supplied because the shepherd's smart. It wasn't an accident that you felt comfortable. The end of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3, he says, He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Being beside water has always been this sign of life and vitality. Even when you read in the beginning about the Garden of Eden, it was placed in this strategic location where there were three rivers. Being placed there is being placed near life. We absolutely have to have water. And then he says, he restores my soul. And there are all sorts of crazy things that commentators say about this. And here's what I find the most fascinating. Is that the restoration of the soul doesn't have to do with things that we're inclined to think about, like salvation from hell and going to heaven. It has to do with a person who's beaten down, a person who is lonely, a person who's depressed, a person who is hurt, a person who's enduring pain, a person who is suffering. The imagery of of this shepherd and sheep um, is so thick with with elements that are, are absolute reflections of what our real lives are like. Do you know what a, what a cast sheep is? A cast sheep is a sheep that has been turned over on its back. It's so heavy or tired that its center of gravity is off such that it can't keep itself upright. That's a real thing. Usually it's the result of the fleece is way too thick and needs to be taken off. It's also the result of just one of them being pregnant and being tired. When a shepherd comes across a cast sheep, he doesn't look at it with disdain. He understands why it's that way. And he helps it. If that sheep is not helped, it will die. That's a real thing. I think this is what's going on here with this restores the soul language is we have to go through things in life that could kill us, emotionally kill us, physically kill us. And our shepherd is in the business of restoring. Many people have this idea that when a child of God falls, that God is just frustrated with us. When we're helpless, 
he's annoyed and inconvenienced. God does not become disgusted. One of the great revelations of the heart of God comes to us in books like this, but through the person of Jesus Christ, where he himself, as our shepherd, went through a bunch of the same things that we go through. Anxiety, loss, concern, compassion, brokenness, fear. It's not just that God looks at us as his sheep and isn't angry. It's that he looks at us as his sheep and he knows. He knows what we have been through. One of my favorite parts of the Chronicles of Narnia has to do with the very first book. There's a boy named Diggory whose mother is dying and Diggory gets pulled into Narnia. And he has this opportunity to go and retrieve an apple for the, the, the lion Aslan. And Aslan has some need for it. And while Diggory's off collecting this apple, he gets approached by the white witch. And the white witch is telling him, look, this apple will give you life. It will make you live forever. And I know your mom's sick. Rather than giving this to Aslan, why don't you take it home and give it to your mom? And Diggory nearly does. But instead, he gets it back to Aslan, and he's obedient there. And he finally works up the courage to ask Aslan if it really would have worked. Because what he's dealing with is the regret of doing the right thing when he wanted to do something different. And Aslan, the way the book describes it, Aslan comes to him. He's this lion, and he comes to him nose to nose where they can see the wetness of one another's eyes. And Aslan says to him, only you and I know this pain. To me, <laughs> to me, that it helps my imagination to believe that my Savior, that my God actually understands me, not understands things like I've been through, but understands me, the way that I feel, the way that I hurt. <clears throat> I think that's what's going on when he says he restores my soul, that the shepherd attends to us in a very meaningful and personal way. The rest of verse 3 says, He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. This word righteousness, I think, can distract us into thinking maybe something theological. Um, other transla some translations will just say right paths or correct paths. And there is some imagery, if you, if you go and check some of these videos out where they talk about what shepherding was really like in Israel, where there are these paths that are cut into the edge of hills so that sheep have the right, uh, or they, they have every possibility of keeping themselves upright and finding the grass. That there's this idea that God knows which path you need, and he only takes you down those I think it's safe to conclude that God will never lead you down a path that is wrong. It's easier for me to say when I end up somewhere I don't want to be that this was my fault. Because God wouldn't do that. God wouldn't trick me into being somewhere that I don't need to be. <clears throat> he only leads us down correct paths. I also think um, here at the end of that, that verse, at the end of verse 3, for his name's sake, is because God actually cares about his reputation. He wants you to believe what's right about him. He wants you to be able to tell other people what's right about him. I think the same kind of thing is going on in John 17, where Jesus is praying and he says, God, glorify me now so that I can glorify you. There are these words that carry with them promotion of reputation. We want people to actually believe that you will lead us down right paths because it's true. 
And if you find yourself in a place where you question what God might lead you into and whether or not it would be a right path, then I'll ask again, what are you allowing to inform your imagination? Because this says he only leads you down paths of righteousness. Verse 4 This is the verse where if you haven't already, you probably associate this psalm with funerals because this is the one that comes up in the movies, right? They read Psalm 23. It strikes me that David didn't write this about dying. He wrote this about living. Verse four says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Make note that he says, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He didn't say, I walk through the valley of death. He walks through the valley of the shadow. Also notice that there's some language that has changed at this point. We've moved from third person into second person. We've been saying he, and now we're saying you. It might be a clue into progression of intimacy. But it's the shadow of death. A shadow can't hurt you. I mean, if if you're like me and you remember being little, you thought they could. And a shadow in the right place would just scare you to death. But a shadow can't do anything. A shadow of a dog can't bite you. A shadow of a knife can't hurt you. I wonder if there's something messianic in this when you think about the fact that the shadow of death still can't sting you. Death can't. Jesus took care of that, didn't he? So even though we walk through the land where the shadows of death still surround us, we don't have to fear. He makes reference to this shepherd's rod and staff. A shepherd's rod was called a a, a cudgel. It was actually this short little stick that they would carry on their belt. And for some of them, it was probably realistic that, that both of these things were the same piece of equipment. But if they were separate, they would carry this rod on their belt. And it was used for protection. It was used when one of these sheep are in danger and they need to attack something. <clears throat> That's its purpose. The staff with this crook in the end of it was a tool for guide to guide a sheep, to help them move into the right direction. And whether or not they were two separate things or they were the same, that's the way they were used. Neither one of these are a tool for discipline and correction, at least not here. These are tools to protect. It's a tool to guide to attack things that might harm us and to lead us away from physical dangers. And those things provide comfort. So here again, if you, if you derive something from your relationship with God that is different than comfort, what is informing your imagination? Because David says these two things give him comfort. They should be giving us comfort. Verse 5, he says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup runs over. For me, this is my favorite part of the psalm. Um... Did you guys ever 
get into an argument with a, another kid and at what came out of your mouth was my dad stronger than your dad? I could get super creative in, in how my dad would dismantle another guy's dad. <laughs> and I think I really thought that was true. Um, but that's part, of, that's part of why this is my favorite part. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. This table is imagery of providing us the things that we need. You know, where I said earlier, being laid down in green pastures isn't about eating. This is. And he doesn't take us to some safe place to do it. He does it right there in front of the ones who want our harm. In the presence of my enemy. Most of us think that uh, when we ask for God's help, for his assistance, that what, we're, what we want is for him to remove us from some kind of situation or circumstance. And God's the kind of dad that would help you in the midst of it. He doesn't need to remove you from your enemies in order to care for you. He can do that right there in the midst of them. He supplies us with what we need. <clears throat> I think that the mentality of people that would have read um, and listened to this psalm, they would have understand, they would have understood the same things that many of our New Testament characters also understood um, about what it meant to greet somebody, to invite them in, to anoint their head with oil. These were things that were common. They were, they were practiced as good gestures of kindness. Um, you can even read about one of them when, uh, in, in Luke 7 where Jesus goes into the house of the Pharisee and a woman that they just refer to, just refers to as a sinner, comes with them. And she can't stop crying and washing Jesus' feet, kissing his feet, anointing his feet with oil. And Simon, the Pharisee, just stands there. And Jesus, I think, is seriously annoyed. And he says, I got something I want to say to you. <laughs> and then he tells this story about uh, a rich man who had two debtors. One of them owed him 500 and the other one 50. And he forgave both of them freely. And he asked, which one do you think loved the rich man more? And Simon says, probably the one that owed him more. Jesus was trying to get this guy to see this woman that is anointing him, that is kissing him, she's the one that loves him more. She had more to be forgiven. <clears throat> but that's how he should have been received, with anointing and a kiss. Now here in the imagery of sheep, it's not just inviting a sheep into your house because you wouldn't be doing that, but you, you would have as a shepherd still anointed a sheep for some different reasons. One is so that they can stay with the flock because anointing a sheep with oil would do practical things for them, keep flies away from them, keep wounds from getting infected and worse. Anointing was this process of maintaining inclusion in the group. And the shepherd does that. As I understand it, um, they still do it. And they still do it over there. And they still do it with olive oil. And a bunch of spices. And as I understand it, it's not altogether different than when you pull out some kind of tube of something or another and put it on your lips. It protects it refreshes. That's what he's doing. <clears throat> he says, my cup runs over. Imagery that his lot in life is more than full. What he believes he actually deserves, he's getting way more. Which I think is an indication of David's gratitude and humility. And in the end, verse 6, he says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This word mercy, 
This is the Hebrew word, hesed. I think Dave talked about it a few weeks ago. It, it means loyal love. That surely goodness and God's loyal love will follow me all the days of my life. This word follow is not like brings up the rear. It's not, it's not just that wherever I go, it'll tag along. This word means to pursue. To, it even means chase. It's not just that God's goodness and love is somehow close by when we need it. It's that it's after us. Do you actually believe God is after you with love? If you don't, what are you allowing to inform your imagination? Dwelling in the house of the Lord is, is this language that would have been common um, common uh, for them to be communicating they want communion. And I don't mean taking bread and wine. I mean relationship, proximity with another person. I want to be there with them. In fact, the word dwell here in this last verse, it also carries with it this meaning of returning. So just say you stepped out because you decided you were okay by yourself. There's still place to return. Now, that's not a new story, right? You've, you've, you've heard that kind of story before about a son who decides he's done and he's ready to leave. <clears throat> so Psalm 23, Psalm 23 is this psalm about life, about what David believed his relationship with his shepherd was really like. And this helps us to imagine what our relationship with God is. Because we're surrounded by things that misinform us. They teach us wrong things about who God is and what he's like. Psalm 23 makes God out to be this loving, compassionate, attentive, personal God who's very interested in the details of your life. <clears throat> if we can allow that to inform our imaginations, I'm going to guess that life takes on a whole new layer of peace, of confidence, of liberty to actually be able to love other people who you know are messed up. When we think wrong things, it causes chaos. It causes fear, anxiety, all sorts of crazy things. I told you that I had like utterly abused my kid's imagination, which I really did. I was making up all sorts of stuff. Everything was 10 times the size it really is. I told him that I had gotten stabbed by a hog's tusk and it was like three feet long. It was so long we had to saw it off and I just pulled it out the other side. And we're trying to leave this deer blind and it's dark. And that kid's flashlight is dead. And we've got like a mile to walk. And I'm not scared of the dark anymore. <laughs> and I'm so attentive to my four-year-old that the thought that he might be scared of the dark just never crossed my mind. So we get out of that hot deer blind box and we start walking. <clears throat> and it, I don't know, I don't know how many of you have, who have been out, um, in the middle of nowhere, but it's amazing what your senses do when you're in a place that's really, really quiet and you can't hear traffic and you can see stars everywhere. You can hear birds and bugs and all sorts of stuff. And I am so captivated by that stuff. It so much reminds me of growing up out in the middle of nowhere. And all of a sudden it hits me. I hear this huge snotty sniff come out of my four-year-old and a little bit of a whimper. 
And I was such a jerk dad that I didn't even have a hold of him. We're just walking in the dark. So I stopped and I turned around and I said, hey, are you okay? And he goes, I'm looking for my dad. So I walk over to him and it's, it's not quite pitch black, but I walk over to this silhouette of my gigantic four-year-old and I pick him up and I can feel his heart beating in his chest. So I put him in my arms and he sticks his head here in my neck. And I said, buddy, I made all of that stuff up. Almost none of that is true. Everything is 10 times smaller than what I made it out to be. I'm really sorry. And that little punk goes, I knew you were lying, Dad. (laughs) The way we allow our imaginations to be informed matters. And here in Psalm 23, I think you can ask questions like this when you look through this chapter. You can say, you can say, I shall not want rest. Why? Because he makes me lie down in green pastures. I shall not want peace. Because he leads me beside still waters. I shall not want forgiveness. Because he restored my soul. I shall not want for guidance because he leads me in right paths. I shall not want companionship because he's always with me, which sounds a lot like Psalm 139, that even if I tried to run to the end of the earth, his hand would gently lead me. I shall not want for comfort because his rod and his staff comfort me. I shall not want for food because he prepares a table for me. I shall not want for protection because he does that in front of my enemies. I shall not want for acceptance because he anoints my head with oil. I shall not want for abundance because my cup runs over. I shall not want for grace because goodness and his loyal love follow me. I shall not want for security because I will dwell in his house forever. Father, thank you for this psalm, for this this song that we get to read about who you really are. And we are living in a world where so many things are said, so many, so many distractions exist, and it is often so hard to keep our eyes focused and our minds stayed on who we know you to be. So I pray this morning that you would work in to the depths of our hearts and our minds who it is that you really are to give us these things, to give us hope to give us security, to give us grace in the midst of a world that is increasingly chaotic. Would you be with us, be near us, lead us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with us.
Jesus this week. Thank you for coming.